0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So today is our dedication service for uh, the church. Uh, I want to go to the Lord in prayer first and just ask his blessing on this. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us here, for providing this place Lord uh what a what a what a blessing this has been and we know that it's all been from your hand and so we we thank you Lord God and this morning as we as we just take this time to just to set aside this time not only our own lives for you but Lord just this building and our purpose as a church we want to set aside and devote it to you this morning and so Lord we just ask your blessing on our time this morning in Jesus name amen so A dedication service. I've never done a dedication service, as you can probably tell. So um, what is a dedication service? Well, I had to look up dedication. I mean, I know what dedication, I think I know what dedication means. So I looked it up. And here's a couple definitions. The first one is this. It's to mark the official completion or opening of a public building, a monument, highway, etc., usually by formal ceremonies. So that's true. We're officially opening up this to the public, right, to this community. It's, it's a building we're we're complete with the process. The city said, yep, you're all signed off. You're good to go. Um, and, and so it, that's true. We are dedicating this building. Unfortunately, the formality part of it's not there, okay? It's, it's me. So uh, anyway, so so that's one definition, and, and it's true. But here's another definition that I think is a little bit more accurate for our fellowship. It says to devote wholly and earnestly as to some per- person or purpose. And, you know, that's a lot better definition. Devoted wholly and earnestly to a person. Let me read this from a flyer that we've sent out to our neighborhood. Calvary Chapel Rochester is a fellowship of believers in the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We're, we're believers that we, we, we believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ and we're in fellowship together. So we're devotedly, uh, devoted wholly and earnestly to Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're devoted wholly and earnestly to a purpose. And here's another statement from a flyer that we sent out. Our supreme desire is to know Christ and to be conformed to his image by the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that's really, in a nutshell, our purpose. We want to know Christ. We want to be conformed to his image. So what is Calvary Chapel? I can tell you right now, it's not a building. Uh, although this is where we meet Sundays, Wednesdays, and other days of the week, it's also not an impersonal org- organization. Some people say the church. You know, they have this category, the church. Uh, it's not. It's you and I who are believers. We're a fellowship of believers in the lordship of Jesus Christ. So how do we accomplish our purpose, our purpose to be, to know Christ and to be conformed to his image by the Holy Spirit? You know, I'm not a good woodworker. And, and you know, I learned a lot working with the contractors here. We had one, Dan's cousin was uh, the carpenter that worked here. Great guy, very patient. You know, he taught me some stuff and it was just great. Um, Years ago, I wanted to make some really fine furniture, and I had never taken wood shop in school or anything. You know, I took some metal working, but never wood and stuff. So, anyways, I got wood, and uh, I measured. You know, made took a measurement, cut that piece of wood, and I thought, you know what? I don't need to measure every single piece. I'll just take that piece, and I'll I'll just draw lines. And man, it's, it's fast. I don't know why anybody ever does that. Well, when I got done, and I tried to put this thing together, I know why people don't do that. <laughs> I mean, it's great if you're building, like, a bench for out in your backyard or your garage. But if you want to build something that looks nice, you don't do it that way. You take your measurement, you measure one thing, you cut it, you measure again on another one, you cut it. You don't take a pattern of a pattern of a pattern. If you want to make something that's precisely similar to an original, you don't make a copy of a copy, which is a copy of a previous copy, which is what I was trying to do. You go to the original. Um, You know... A lot of churches, and I'm not knocking any churches, but a lot of churches pattern themselves after other churches. They look at other churches and go, that's, wow, look at the successful church. They got so many people. They got all these, pro- man, that's success. What are they doing? And we'll adopt it into our church. And so a lot of churches pattern themselves after what appears to be successful churches. And that's how you end up seeing trends in the churches. Here's a trend. It's It's I'm a little behind the times, but here's a relatively recent trend. I know it's been around for a number of years. Single word name churches. You know, it used to be like First Baptist Church or Second Presbyterian Church or or Church of God. Or so. now you have words like Encounter, Encounter Church or Connect Church or Renewal Church or Stream Church or Purpose Church. Or you know, you could name whatever whatever he is, and nothing wrong with that. But that's a trend that's going through churches. If you want to be hip, you know, you, you get a single name. Not only that, you get a rock concert. You need a rock band, okay? Um, it's very interesting. Uh, I just reconnected with a, a co-worker long before I was a pastor. Um, I, I was working with his friend. We became friends, and we would do things together. And uh, when I And that was in... I met him here in Minnesota. We both transferred with our company to California. We both worked in California together. And then in 1996, I transferred back here to Rochester. He stayed. And uh, anyways, I lost contact with him. Out of the blue, two weeks ago... I get this text message, and he's and he did not no name, just a number. He's like, "Hey, uh, I'm in town. You know, I'd like to get together with you." I'm like, "Well, who are you, first of all?" And then he's like, "I'm Bob." I'm like, "Bob," and then finally it dawned on me who Bob was, and and I'm like, "Wow, yeah, let's try to get together." So we tried a couple times. Eventually, um, it didn't work out too well. So he we said, "How about we go to coffee?" I said, "Great." So we met for coffee, and uh, so he 's sharing the last twenty some odd years we hadn 't been in contact. Uh, he had gotten colon cancer, uh, he had surgery, radiation surgery you know in remission. He recovered from that a couple years later. His wife died, just up and died of a heart attack and uh, and he said, "Man, for a year I was in my house i couldn 't i just didn 't leave my house it did depression and everything you know and uh, and so i 'm listening to him i 'm like i 'm praying I'm like Lord, how do I segue this into?" he's sharing about you. So anyway, so I said to him, I said, you know, boy, it sounds like you've really been spared from a lot. And he told me about this bad accident that he was out on, on uh, a freeway on California. He was dragged by a semi-tractor for many miles. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe that. And I said, man, do you ever think about your spiritual life? You know, and I started talking about that. And, 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 you know, he's like, no, and stuff. And I go, you know, I, I just want to tell you, man, you know, I'm a pastor now. And I said, you know, a lot of things have changed in my life. He goes, I know. He goes, I went to your website, and I read your testimony. I didn't know all that stuff about you. And I go, oh, I said, that's cool. And I said, you know, I, I'm a different person. He goes, I, he goes, I know. I've been listening to your messages on the internet. I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> so anyways, so, you know, uh, the other day, Friday night, uh, he invited Teresa and I to go over to a bonfire. And I'm not into bonfires, you know, with the beer and everything. But you know what? jesus met with the prostitutes and uh, you know i mean just not that they're prostitutes <laughs> jesus met with sinners right and if we want to be <laughs> if we want to be salt and light we want to meet with people we want to be in in you know just not here in the church but we want to be out in the community so we went and uh, had a nice visit with them and stuff and uh, just pray for them they need the lord definitely pray for them but anyways why am i sharing that when we, he and I met for coffee, he shared with me, he said, you know, uh, I, was, I was asking about spiritual things and stuff like that and the Lord and stuff, and he said, you know, my daughter, um, my oldest daughter, uh, you know, we never did church or anything like that. I grew up Catholic, but, I mean, we never did anything with it. Or, so he goes, my oldest daughter wanted to investigate religion. Okay, that's his words. So, so she started going to all these different churches, and she found this church, and she invited us to go to it. This is in California. She goes, it was, he goes, It was a big church. He said, My wife and I, we decided to go. We get in there, and he goes, It's like a rock concert. He goes, There's this rock band up there, and they're just playing rock music. He goes, But you know what? You could tell it was religious music. <laughs> but it was rock, you know. He said, My wife turned to me and said, Man, this is lame. <laughs> Let's get out of here. And he said, that's, We never went back again. And I thought, You know how sad that is trying to be hip, trying to fit in. And and the world looks at us and goes, man, that's lame. So we don't want to copy copies of copies of previous copies. If we want to pattern ourselves, if we want to be conformed to Jesus, we want to know Christ and be conformed to his image, we need to go back to the original. We need to measure ourselves from the original. What's the original? It's the church in the book of Acts. And that's why if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to take a look at a few things this morning. Acts chapter 2, and I'm just going to briefly give you the scene. I, I read it this morning. If you were here before worship, I read a portion of it. But it's the Feast of Pentecost. It's one of the feasts where all able-bodied Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem. And so as a result, there's pilgrims from all over the known world, from Rome, from uh, Africa, all over, in the, and they've known, they speak their own language. They're all descended on Jerusalem for the feast. Jesus had already ascended into heaven. The disciples, there's about 120 of them, they're gathered in an upper room praying and just waiting on the Lord and suddenly there's this great sound of a rushing wind. And the crowd, I mean, it probably sounded like a hurricane or maybe a tornado, but it was enough to where the crowd's like, what's going on? And they rushed to find out what is happening. When they get there, they see that the Holy Spirit, well, they don't know if it's the Holy Spirit, but they see these, what looks like tongues of fire uh, on each of the disciples. And they're speaking in the ten, or the languages of the people that are there. And all these people, they, they start, the Bible says that they started speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so there's these people from all the different places, and they're looking at these Galileans that are uneducated. Some of them are fishermen or whatever, and they're speaking all these, it's like, where did they go to school to learn that? All these different languages. And so they say, what could this mean? And there's, of course, there's always going to be people that mock, and so there's these mockers who go, go, ah, they're just drunk, forget it. Well, Peter, at that point, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He stands up with the 11 disciples, and he basically tells them, hey, we're not drunk. But what they're witnessing is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which was prophet, which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. It would happen in the last days. He then goes on to deliver a sermon, his first sermon. And we're going to pick it up in verse 36, because I'm just going to get the tail end of it. Verse 36. So he's gone through all this stuff, and then he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation." Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The first church was born that day. 3,000 believers. Boom! Talk about going from nothing to... What do you do with 3,000 believers? So who were they? Well, they were those who gladly received Peter's word. They believed what, what Peter said, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, and then they responded, they repented. That word "repentance" is metaneo, it means to change one's mind, or to think differently, to reconsider. So now they're like, wow, you know, they recognize that they're sinners. They agreed with with what God says about sin. And so as a result from that, they were baptized. Now notice the order. First, they're cut to the heart. Then they're convicted of their sins, which means they're convicted of their sins. They respond to Peter's message. Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. And then those who gladly received his words were baptized. The reason why I say that is they already had a change of heart and a change of mind. They already believed and received Peter's message about Jesus. Then they were baptized. See, a lot of people think that baptism saves a person. It doesn't. Baptism is an outer sign of what has already taken place in the believer's hearts. These young children, young, young, young kids that are going to be getting baptized this morning, they have already committed their lives to Jesus Christ, and now they want to, they want to go through the, the, the ordinance of baptism. And so the, the change has already taking place. So baptism doesn't save a person. Well, what, what is recorded next serves as a pattern for all subsequent churches down through the ages. You see, we don't need to copy the cool, cool church down the street uh, to see what they're doing. We need to do what the Church of Acts did. Um, there's a book called The Pilgrim Church. It's by a, gay, a guy named E.H. Broadbent. And he wrote this in in page 26. He said, events in the history of the churches in the time of the apostles have been selected and recorded in the book of Acts in such a way as to provide a permanent pattern for the churches. Departure from this pattern has had disastrous consequences. And all revival and restoration have been due to some return to the pattern and principles in the scriptures. So what are the patterns and the principles. Look at verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continually, uh, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In that passage, as I read, they continued steadfastly in four things. And we see it in verse 42. First of all, what does it mean to continue steadfastly? The word is proskatero, I'm not really good at Greek, but it means to be devoted to, to give unremitting care to, excuse me, to persevere in, to adhere closely to, to be earnest towards. So you kind of get the idea. So first, they were devoted to, adhered closely to, they persevered in the apostles' doctrine. What does that mean? It means, you know, Jesus spent all this time with the, about three years or so, with the apostles. They were the disciples. They were students of Jesus. And Jesus said and taught his disciples during that period. After he arose from the dead, he spent 40 days with them again, teaching them and, and, and instructing them. So the apostles' doctrine is what Jesus said and taught. And also what the apostles, <clears throat> excuse me, under the inspiration of the Holy, Holy Ghost, instructed in their letters, which are known as the epistles. I want to read this to you out of Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the Holy Spirit's communication to man. Peter wrote this in his next epistle, Second Peter 3, verse 1. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir you up, or stir, excuse me, "...in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior." What is he talking about? The words uh, that were spoken before by the holy prophets, it's the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures. The word of Jesus himself, which is recorded in the Gospels, and the commandments of the apostles. That's all what we're talking about. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy three sixteen. He said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here at Calvary Chapel Rochester, we really believe in going through and teaching the entire counsel of God, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. We teach it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We adhere closely to the full counsel of God and we try very carefully not to depart from it into tradition or experience. We want to adhere as close to the word of God as we can. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In that chapter in Acts 2 that we're reading about, the gift of tongues, the Holy Spirit's poured out on the disciples. They start speaking in tongues. All these people run up and they go, what could this mean? And I love what Paul or excuse me what Peter says in verse 16 he says but this what they're experiencing but they witness but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel and then he quotes out of Joel see at Calvary Chapel Rochester the scriptures are the only authority for the practices of this church when it comes to anything that we do within the, in this building, anything that we do as practice or doctrine, there must be a scriptural basis behind it. Does Jesus teach on it or refer to it? Do we see it practiced in the book of Acts? And do the apostles expound on it in their epistles? That's the, that's, that's the measurement that we take for scriptures. Let me give you an example. Fasting. There is a scriptural basis for fasting. Jesus spoke about fasting. He even fasted. We see it practiced in the Church of Acts. The epistles expound on fasting. Believer's baptism, which we're going to be doing shortly after the service, there's a scriptural basis for it. Jesus spoke about it. Jesus himself was baptized. We see it practiced in the Church of Acts, and the epistles expound on it. So those are things that we do. We go, yeah, okay, how about foot washing? How many of you have ever been to a foot washing service? It's not heresy, okay? It's not Don't it's it's not like, I don't want to raise my hand because I'm going to think I'm, no. It's not heresy. But listen, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, right? Hey, it's in the Bible. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It was an illustration of humility and servanthood, by the way. But you know what? You get to the book of Acts, we don't see it practiced in the church of Acts. And we also don't read about, the epistles don't expound on, you know, foot washing. So although, I, and I have to say there's nothing wrong with foot washing, it's not something that we practice here. Why? Because it, it's not, the Bible doesn't, there's no scriptural basis for that particular practice. Again, there's nothing wrong with it. I've been to foot washing services. I don't like them, by the way, because if you don't know about it, and you, you pull your shoe and I go, ooh, I feel sorry for the person that's going to wash my feet, you know. I should have trimmed my nails, you know, whatever it is, you know. Um, here's one, and, and I don't want to step on, I'm going to step on some toes. Okay, being slain in the Spirit. That's, that's something that, you know, we see that in different, different churches and stuff. Listen, the only time we see that even remotely in the, in the Gospels is, um, is in the Gospel of John, actually. There, Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane, and the high priest servants and the Roman soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus, and uh, it's at night, and it's dark, and they, and they come up, and Jesus says to them, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he, And at that point, in in John 18, verse 6, he says, Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They were wiped out. The only time we see it in the church of Acts is when we read about Ananias and Sapphira. Neither of those examples are something that I want to pursue, be honest with you. Um, So we don't see it in the church of Acts. We also, the apostles don't expound on being slain in the spirit anywhere. I can't find it anywhere. now I'm, I just want to say this. this is not to condemn those that believe in that practice because I don't doubt their sincerity, their love for the Lord, you know their what they believe I, I don't, I'm not condemning it at all, but what I can tell you is that Calvary Chapel Rochester, if we can't say if we can't if somebody comes in and goes, "What are you doing?" If we can't go, "Well, this is what is spoken of in the scriptures." If we can't do that, then we shouldn't be doing it. Period. Whatever it is. And you could fill in you could you can use that measurement for anything. If someone were to ask us what could this mean, we should be able to say this is what was spoken of in the prophet in the scriptures and we should be able to point it out. So on our flyer that we sent out. I also wrote this, We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible, Old and New Testaments, in the original autographs, original writings, is the inspired, infallible Word of God, a complete and final revelation of God. We systematically teach through each book of the Bible and find application for daily living. You know, if you think about it, the first sin recorded in the Bible, remember when Satan tempted Eve? What did he say? He basically had her question God's Word. Did God really say that? Did God really say? And that's been his mode of operating down through the down through the ages. Did God really say that? Scriptures is always being challenged, always being attacked. Did God really mean that? I mean, do you really believe in the literal interpretation of God's word? And, and I would say here, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And so it's so important to be devoted to, adhered closely to, and persevere in the Word of God. What's the second thing that they were devoted to, that they adhered closely to, that they persevered in? It's the apostles' fellowship. That word is koinonia. It means association, community, communion, joint participation. We see it evidenced in the book of Acts. In the in early on in the book of Acts, Peter and John get arrested for preaching Jesus, and uh, they get warned. I don't know if they got flogged the first time, but anyways, they ended up getting released. What did they do when they got released? Acts 4.23, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. They got together with the brothers and sisters and said, hey, this is, they they shared what was going on. In Acts 5.12, it says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. I don't know how they got a Honda in there, but they were all with one accord in in, in, in Honda's porch, in Solomon's porch. Sorry, that was lame, I know. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to be hip. Um, As you go on through the scriptures, as you look in the church of Acts, they're always together. They're they're going to the temple together. They're doing everything. They're eating together. Uh, Later on, Peter gets arrested a second time. But this time an angel wakes Peter up, he's, he's fast asleep, and, and an angel wakes Peter up and leads him out of the jail. And in Acts 12, it's where it's recorded in verse 11, says, and when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. They were uh, where many were gathered together praying. The church was praying together. They're gathered together. They were probably praying for Peter. The early church fellowshiped together. They hung out together. They worshiped together. They prayed together. They shared their lives with each other, and they encouraged each other. That is a major thing that we need to cling to and adhere to. In Hebrews ten we're warned to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So fellowship was a very important thing. I encourage you, be in fellowship. Not just here within these buildings, but they went from home to home. They shared meals. They spent time together. They cried together. They laughed together. They prayed for one another. That's what fellowship is. Third, they were devoted to, adhered closely to, and persevered in the breaking of bread. What is that? Well, there's two aspects to it. The first is the agape meals. Uh, the second aspect of it is the Lord's Supper, and they frequently did it together. Uh, they would do their meal, their, their agape meal, their love feast, whatever, and then they would have the Lord's Supper at the end. They'd celebrate communion at the end. So one aspect, the agape meals, it was fellowship, right? We have a nickname in the Calvary Chapel movement. We call ourselves Calvary Chapel. I mean, we have potlucks every Wednesday night. And if you, man, if, if, if you're not eating good at home, come to our potlucks there 's tons of food usually there 's lots of food i 'm like Paul, you know I like to buffet my body, so um, anyways, <laughs> I stole that from somebody. Uh, but if you think about it, in that first century, in that first church, there were rich people getting saved, there were poor people getting saved, there were free people and slaves getting saved. And so sharing meals with less fortunate, it was a very practical aspect of fellowship and ministry. The other aspect was the Lord's Supper, and usually it was at the end of the agape meal, and it was a sacrament of remembering Christ's sacrifice for sin. Jesus said, do this as as often as you do this. You're doing this in remembrance of me, and if the first century church did it to remember what had just happened not too many years ago or, or shortly before, how much more do we need to do it here in the 21st century, remembering Christ's sacrifice for sin? What do we remember? We remember, hey, the price has been paid for us. Oh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We've been set free from that. It's also always to be in the forefront of our minds that all of us in the fellowship, we're here together only because of the cross of Christ. You look around the room, for those of you that are members or, or you, this is your church home, we come from so many different backgrounds. Outside of the, in the world, we probably wouldn't even be friends But because of the cross of Christ, we've come together and we're family here. And so we remember, hey, my brother, my sister, Christ died for them, too. You know, in the in the church in Corinth, there was a lot of divisions in the church in Corinth. And one of the things people they felt like I have got the I've got the liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I can do this or I can do that, and and I don't care. You know, there'd be another believer there that about man, I, I, that's sin. I can't do it, and they would stumble because this other believer said, Well, I can do it. And so Paul really came against that and said, man, don't be, don't be abusing your liberties, your freedoms in Christ for the sake of a brother. He says in 1 Corinthians eight eleven. and because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. So yet when we do communion and we're all doing it together, we all remember and Christ died for each one of us. And that should affect how we think about one another. You know, we love one another. It's hard to hold unforgiveness towards a brother or to offer forgiveness when I realize that I've been forgiven of so much. You know, so it, it affects how we are in fellowship with one another. The fourth thing that they were devoted to, adhered closely to, and persevered in was prayer. Why is that important? Well, prayer in itself is an act of worship to the Lord, right? We praise the Lord. We thank the Lord. It gives us the humility that we need before him. And also, you know, we utter our, we confess our utter weakness and our complete dependence upon him. This whole process of this church building was born in prayer. It was prayer all the way through. It's like prayer, Lord, do we have the finances? Can we do this? And the Lord would just, he would meet our needs. We were utterly dependent upon him prayer is also how your and my faith is built up because as we, you know, the Bible tells us that God hears our prayers and he answers them. There's a very humorous illustration of that in the book of Acts. I mentioned it earlier. Peter was put in jail the second time in Acts 12. An angel delivers Peter and uh, and Peter doesn't realize that at first. He's kind of, I mean, He thinks maybe he's walking, sleepwalking or dreaming, but then after he gets out, he's out in the cold night air and you go, well, that it's real. I'm out, you know, and that must have been an angel of the Lord. So he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. There, the believers, it says, are gathered together praying. Undoubtedly, they're praying for Peter's release. And he knocks on the door. They're all busy praying. So the servant girl comes to the door and she doesn't open the door, but she hears Peter's voice. And goes, oh, it's Peter. And she runs back and she says, Hey, Peter's here. And they're like, Man, you're out of your mind. And he's, she's like, no, 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 I, I, it's Peter. I know it's Peter. She never opened the door. I know it's Peter. And they go, man, it's got to be his angel. We know that because he's in jail. We're you're praying for his release. We know he's in jail. We've been praying for him. And yet God had released him. I mean, it's like, <laughs> hello. God answers prayer. Listen, I want to encourage you this morning in something. If I were to pull each one of you who are believers in Jesus Christ this morning and ask you, how many of you want to grow in the area of prayer? I'm willing to I'm almost willing to lay money on this that 100% of you would say I want to grow in the area of prayer. I, I'm one of them. I want to grow in the area of prayer. I bet you we all do. There are a lot of good books on prayer. Um Ian e. Bounds, if you ever want to read a book on prayer, that's a good book to read. But you know reading about prayer is it's going to have some benefit, but if you really want to grow in prayer, you know what you need to do? Pray. Exactly. Just start praying. Just do it. Just pray. You'll grow in prayer. So I want to encourage you this morning. So we'll continue on here. Verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them all among among all as anyone had need. I'm here to say right now, I think this is more of a principle than an actual pattern. You think about it, that first communal, uh, the first century communal living, it was relatively short lived in the book of Acts. In fact, if you think about it, they had 3,000 believers most of them were from out of town in one day. And, uh, and each day, more and more were getting saved. And so many of those first believers, they were pilgrims who had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And now all of a sudden, their entire world has changed. Their entire outlook. And they've got brothers and sisters that are, that, you know, it's like, man, tell me more about Jesus. I want to learn more. And so it would have been a natural thing for them to want to stay in town. But what do you do with them? You take them into your house. You invite them in. And so that's, I think that's, where a lot of that was taking place. Um, it would have been a very natural and practical purpose for communal living. Now, I know in, in, uh, in the time when the Jesus people movements, you know, really took, took off in the late 60s, early 70s, there were Christian communes. I don't know if there's any Christian communes today. Um, but, you know, when we look at this, you go, wow, we should all be doing that. Um, it's kind of like communism. Well, it's not. <laughs> you know what communism is? what's yours is mine, right? That's what communism is. This is agape love. What's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. See, it was never, even even when they were doing it, it was never compulsory. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, they were slain by the Spirit, literally, um, not for holding back from the profit of the sale of their property. In fact, Peter says to them in Acts 5 verse 4, while it remained, was it not in your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? So it wasn't a compulsory thing that they had to do, but they lied to the Holy Spirit. That's why they were slain. So the principle of of what we're reading here, it's basically sharing with anyone who has need. And that's basically love. That's love in practice. John, the the apostle of love, (laughs) said this in 1 John 3, 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? See, here's a common misconception. If you see a need, and I've had this happen to me before, someone in our fellowship, God bless them, they'll see a need, their eyes are open, they're not just looking at themselves, they go, wow, that person has a need, but then here's an interesting thing quite often they'll come to me and go, you know what, there's this need and the church should take care of this need. And I usually like, oh, okay, that's cool. Um, you know, you're the church. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're the church too. If you see the need, maybe the Lord's showing it to you. Maybe, maybe he wants you to meet that need. So this is what we're talking about. If you see a need, the Lord lays it on your heart, he opens your eyes to it, and you have the ability to meet that need. Man, that's the Lord speaking to you minister Um, verse 46 so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved these guys were worshipers they were daily going into the temple you think about it these were jews that had just gotten saved, they're going to the temple and they're, they're worshiping Jesus in the temple, which is, you know, they should have been all along in the Old Testament and everything. but they were worshipers and they were breaking bread from house to house. And I love this. They were eating their food with gladness. I mean, they had joy in their hearts and simplicity, uh, joy and simplicity of heart. And, you know, that's one thing that I, I don't know if I want to pride myself on, but I want to say, you know, we're just simple here. We're a simple fellowship. We're not fancy. We don't have the big programs and everything. But we just simply love Jesus and we want to learn more about him. We want to be like him and be molded into his image. You know, one of the things that is a also a purpose of any church, or it should be, is what's known as the Great Commission, right? You guys have heard that before. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, that was their commission, and it's also our commission. And, you know, I believe as you and I, the church, as we follow these patterns and these principles in the church of Acts, if we go back to the original, we're going to reproduce disciples. We don't have to have a discipleship program. You know, oh, it's going to happen as you and I are, cling to and adhere to and earnestly strive after these things in the first church. As for our example and for us to model. And how fitting that we get to close this service by baptizing some young disciples. That's exciting. Um, so we're going to do that in a few minutes.